0: This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Darrell Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. Our first speaker this morning is a dear brother. I count him a friend. More than that, I, I count him a soldier. He has been faithful as a pastor He has been faithful as an academician, as a professor. He is now faithful as a public servant. He is, I think, one of the most prophetic figures in our generation. By prophetic, I mean he has a relentless commitment to the Bible. He understands that the truth of the Bible is beautiful, and it is to be proclaimed to others not as an act of power, but as an act of gracious persuasion that others may come to the truth and that those who have the truth might love it even more. I have been grateful for him in the ways in which he has made himself an ally to people who have often been marginalized, even inside the Christian church. And I've been grateful for him to risk his own name and capital and reputation in order to be an ally, in order to be a public friend, though it accrues no benefit to him. The old word for that is integrity. He's a man of deep integrity, genuine kindness, great love for Christ and the gospel and the church. He serves right now as the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission uh, where he leads the Southern Baptist Convention in its public advocacy and policy work. Um, in that capacity, again, he's been a faithful servant, and he's often been used of the Lord to uh, help Christians think more carefully about the complex times and the complex issues that we face. We're, we are very excited at the front porch and here at Just Gospel to have our brother Dr. Russell Moore come and address us this morning. Come back.
1: Well, thank you. It is such a joy to be here at Just Gospel. I've been looking forward to being with all of you for some time and I'm glad to, to be here. Mark chapter 5. If you turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark chapter 5, I'd like for us to start reading at verse 1 and read down through verse 20, Mark 5, 1 through 20. And since these words are breathed out by the Holy Spirit, come with the exact same authority as if Jesus himself were standing here verbally speaking them to us, would you please stand with me? out of reverence for the voice of our King. Holy Spirit says through Mark, "'They came to the other side of the sea, "'to the country of the Gerasenes. "'And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, "'immediately there met him out of the tombs "'a man with an unclean spirit. "'He lived among the tombs, "'and no one could bind him anymore, "'not even with a chain, "'for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, "'but he wrenched the chains apart "'and he broke the shackles in pieces.' And Jesus asked him, what is your name? The man replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission And the unclean spirit came out of him and entered the pigs, and the herd numbering about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might go with him. But he did not permit him, saying to him, "'Go home to your friends,' And tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. May God bless his word to us today. You may be seated. I was reading just the other day an account by the writer who had written Fight Club, books like that talking about an experience he had had talking to a Scottish journalist. He was being interviewed, and the Scottish reporter said, you know, uh, Americans have written a lot of really dark and haunting songs. His writer said, you know, Americans sure have. He said, the Scottish journalist said, there was one of those songs that just haunted me from the time I heard it all the way through my childhood, and it haunts me to this day. And the author said, well, what? What song was that? He said, it was the song about the incapacitated man, where the woman is taking the food off of his plate a little bit at a time until she starves him to death in his isolation. The author said, I've heard some dark songs, but I haven't heard that one. Who? Who sang that? He said they were called Hall and Oats. And he said, Hall and Oats? He said, can you sing a little bit of this song for me? And the Scottish journalist said, I think I can. Every time you go away, you take a piece of meat with you. (laughs) And the author said, every time you go away, you take a piece of me with you. And the Scottish journalist said, well, you know, that just sort of reframes the whole song. (laughs) As I was reading that, I was realizing, you know, I've had moments like that where I realized that there's a a song that I've been familiar with, or maybe a saying that I've been familiar with, that I had recategorized all my life in a way that I couldn't actually get it. And one of those songs happened many years ago when I was a a doctoral student, and I was uh, working in prison ministry and in homeless ministry, and We were having a service at a homeless shelter in downtown Louisville, and I came in, and that night the the guy who directed the ministry said, tonight's the night that we get them to choose. They can choose whatever hymn, whatever praise song they want, which means it's me and Jesus night. He was referring to an old song by Tom T. Hall, me and Jesus got our own thing going. Uh, We don't need anybody to tell us how it all turns out. That was a song even though I liked Tom T Hall a lot. It was a song I had made fun of. It was a song that I had preached against. It's a song I'd heard other people even if they didn't know it was a song talk about. This isn't just a me and Jesus religion. This isn't just individualism. This is all of us together in the in the community of Christ. And I said, "Well, you can't. We can't sing that song." And he said, "If you tell them they can't sing that song, you are going to have a big disturbance uh, in this worship service tonight. And sure enough, it was the first song that was requested. And what I noticed was that everybody in that room, whether they were young or old, black or white, whatever their background was, they sang this song with an intensity that was like nothing I had ever seen. And I couldn't figure out why. Until years later, I was reading Tom T. Hall talking about why he wrote that song. And he said, he's not a religious person. He he didn't really grow up in church. But he grew up with a mother who lived in deep poverty and suffering. Who would constantly say, me and Jesus have got this. And I realized reading this and then going back and reading the lyrics to the song that they sang that night... I know a man who once was a sinner. I know a man who once was a drunk. I know a man who once was a loser. He went out one day and made an altar out of a stump and realized what they were singing about was not a lack of accountability. What they were singing about was not individualism as opposed to community, What they were singing about was that experience that takes place when all of the support networks are gone, when you think that even the church would reject you, that Jesus is there. So the suffering prism in that song, Jesus brought me through all of my troubles. Jesus brought me through all of my trials. Jesus brought me through all of my heartaches, and I know that Jesus won't forsake me now. I was sitting there listening through that song, through the grid of all of these theological controversies that took place around a table and missed the point of what they were singing about. But what I found in that room and in many rooms like it was something completely different from the sort of sitting around the table bouncing syllogisms back and forth, how many points are you in this and that, seeing people often in my circles who could talk at length about the secret things of God, the order of the decrees, but were very, very uncomfortable talking about the Sermon on the Mount, who could define Christology in terms of ecumenical councils with precision but often didn't seem to know a person named Jesus. But there's a kind of desperation that brings about an encounter that the Bible speaks about over and over and over again an encounter that comes both through loneliness and through community. And that is something that if we are going to be the people of God in our time and in our place, we have to understand. That's because we live in a time right now of profound loneliness. Many people would talk about the loneliness epidemic, about the diseases of despair that we can see in addiction, and suicide, and a thousand other issues. And we live in a time of profound tribalism. What do we mean when we say, we? And in the middle of all of that, we have idealized selves. What's the individual that I project out into the world? through social media or through whatever means to win and to display an image, and idealized communities. Who are the people who are all right as opposed to the people who are all wrong? And I would argue that to see what is happening here, we have to see what is happening in this text in the country of the Gerasenes where Jesus, Mark tells us, encounters a man who is living among the tombs, among the graves. That's important. We don't know why he's in the graveyard. Maybe he lost somebody and was still grieving the loss of that person and was present in the graveyard around that person. Or maybe the the tombs, maybe this was the only place he could go. But for whatever reason, he is among the tombs, which means he's disconnected from the community in obvious ways. People don't usually like to hang out in cemeteries, but also in terms of not just the creepiness of the setting, but also because of holiness. People were not supposed to come around dead bodies. It would make you unclean. It would make you unholy. This man was not only alone, he was untouchable. And not only that, there was a fear of this man. He could not be restrained with chains. He was crying out, he was harming himself. And you notice that the problem is so deep that this man assumes when he encounters Jesus that Jesus is the problem. He is begging him, and you'll see that, that word, begging, showing up repeatedly in this text. He's begging him, go away from me. And he is using the name of Jesus, maybe even to try to gain power over him, by using his name, by speaking of him as the son of the most high God. Not even Simon Peter has confessed this yet, but he recognizes it. And he calls him out by his name. Now, you think about that connection between your name and who you are personally. You notice if your name's misspelled. You notice, Thabiti, don't you notice that? (laughs) You notice when your name is mispronounced. it, It connects to you. Jesus says to this man, what is your name? And notice what the response is. We have no name because we are legion. This man was absorbed into a legion of spirits and personalities such that he could not even be identified anymore. So this man was in crisis both in his isolation and in his crowdedness. He was both on his own and he was smothering to death. Now, the devil works differently in a disenchanted time, doesn't want to call attention to himself for obvious reasons but the pattern works the same in contemporary Western culture because we live in a time where people are bound up in both the isolation of individualism and in the smothering of tribalism at the exact same time. Jason Lanier, who's one of the architects of Silicon Valley, says the problem is that human beings have two modes. He compares it to a wolf. He says there's the solitary wolf mode where you think for yourself and you act for yourself in concert with others, but you're, you're, you're thinking for yourself. And then there's a pack mode. Where you become absorbed into the rest of the pack, the rest of the tribe, and the individuality disappears. He says that's needed. You have a a time of military attack or you have a time of natural disaster. You need everyone to almost operate just as one unit. But the problem is if you are always switched to that pack mode, to that Tribe mode, then not just individuality disappears, but the person disappears. And not only does the person disappear, but this sense of hypervigilance, of being in an act of military attack, goes on all the time in a way that destroys you. Notice the metaphor that the demons use with Jesus we are legion. A Roman term, an imperial term for a military unit acting all as one under attack. He says, that's who I am. That's who we are. And brothers and sisters, in contemporary American culture, that is precisely who we are. That's the reason why, as Lanier points out, you can have the sort of nonsense that can go around online, that you would look at and say, how could anybody who has even two functioning brain cells not see that this is ridiculous? But that's not a bug, that's a feature, he argues. Because once you create these viral communities and once truth is defined in terms of are you one of us, or are you not one of us? Do you operate within the pack or do you not? Then the fact that you are willing to believe and repeat something that is obviously ridiculous and stupid is a sign that you're committed to who we are. You get lost in that. And so, as he argues, what happens is you end up then living like a politician or living like a slave. And it is all built upon a sense of personality cult and tribal antagonism. Not so much who are we in a way that we love it and find it beautiful, but who are they that are scary to us? And this sense of loyalty where, as Marilyn Robinson puts it, Loyalty to the truth can become disloyalty to the tribe means that integrity is in crisis. Jesus talks about this in John 12 when he says that there were many who would not, they would not commit themselves to Jesus Why? Because they were afraid of being put out of the synagogues because they loved the glory that came from man more than the glory that came from God. That is not a situation that happens only then. In almost every situation, as you are attempting to follow Jesus Christ, as revealed in the Gospels, a Jesus Christ who is not predictable, and safe. You will be threatened at every turn, and what will they threaten you with? With exile. You are not one of us. That is a powerful motivation for fear. Same thing is true here with the crowds. When Jesus casts out these demons, they are afraid They beg him to leave. That's what motivates the absorption of integrity into tribalism. There are always going to be forces in your community, in your neighborhood, in your church that will want you to be afraid of them. But what Jesus is fulfilling here, is something that the prophet Elijah saw all the way back in First Kings 17 through 19. When Ahab and Jezebel threaten Elijah with exile, Elijah's response is to say, the God before whom I stand. Elijah recognizes that he is standing at all times in judgment and that he is standing not on the judgment of the crowd. He is standing not in the judgment of whoever happens to be powerful and influential in any given context at the moment. He is standing before the judgment seat of Christ. And once you realize that, as the Apostle Paul does in Galatians chapter 1, once you realize that, you become the freest person on the planet to be able to say I am not afraid of you I fear God when this man has the legion cast out of him there alone in the graveyard with Jesus he the text says comes to himself he has his personhood back he has his selfhood back And he ultimately has community back. But how does he get community? He gets community through the way of loneliness. Jesus had to break with the community in order to form community. If community had been the most important thing in Jesus' mind, he never would have gone into the graveyard. So that just as the Apostle Paul said, talking about the Judaizers in Galatians, we did not yield to them for a moment. Why? So that the gospel would be preserved for you. If community were the most important thing, then Paul would have done exactly what Simon Peter did. Become afraid and start saying, who do I sit with? Who do I talk to? And he could even have convinced himself, I am doing it so that I can maintain my influence for later on. But he said, if I had yielded to that for a minute, the gospel would not be preserved for you, for future Community, for the community of the past that God has formed, for the community of the future that God is forming. And often what you will find is when you break with tribalism, when you break with the smothering, what you find is not only a community out there in the future, you find a community now that you didn't know existed. Elijah would not have known the widow of Zarephath had he not been sent out into the desert. And Jesus said when he stood up to preach his very inaugural sermon, if you understand what God is doing with the widow of Zarephath, if you understand what God is doing with Naaman the Syrian, then you ought to understand what God is doing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is... A liberation to be in Christ, to come to yourself, not as some sort of eat, pray, love kind of self-actualization, but for the sake of the community, including the community that aren't the loudest voices at the table at the moment. Why is American evangelicalism... By every standard in terms of data, and also you can just go as I do across university campuses all over this country, hemorrhaging young people. It is not because they think that we are too faithful to the Bible. Even the ones who think we're crazy for believing the Bible, the reason that they will not even listen to us is not because they have seen a Christianity that is so faithful that it is out of step with the culture. It is because they have seen a Christianity that they believe to be a fraud because it does not measure up even to the standards of what they know about the Bible. So that if you only believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, when it comes to the selected parts of the Bible you want to believe, And if you only believe in the doctrine of hell, as it applies to just the sins you don't want to practice, then what you are is a liberal. If you believe that racism and bigotry are not just brand problems... Do you believe that racism and bigotry do what Jesus says they do? Send you to hell apart from repentance and faith. Then to mute or become ambiguous about racism and bigotry so that you can maintain your influence later on. Means not only do you not love your black and brown brothers and sisters in Christ? it also means you don't love bigots the way Jesus does. Because if you love bigots, if you believe that bigots are created in the image of God, if you believe that Jesus died for bigots, then your response would be to plead as though Christ is pleading through you, be reconciled to God. That's not because you believe in social justice, whatever that is. It's because you believe in hell. If you think that the sexual predation and abuse of women and children is not just a brand problem for the church, but is actually preying on and destroying people in the name of Jesus Christ, And they say to you, keep it secret so that lost people won't know. Keep it secret so people won't stop giving. Keep it secret so that the reputation that we have will go forward. Jesus brings things into the light. And what Jesus does here with this man is after sending out the demons, after he comes back to his right mind, he creates for him a new community, a community that is not based on the flesh. The crowds hated that Jesus was there because he destroyed their living. They would rather have their standard of living than they would have this brother. And Jesus here comes in and tears apart that useful means-to-an-end kind of religion that sends people to hell and brings a genuine gospel that brings a genuine communion with a God who is not a syllogism but is a person revealed in the face of Jesus Christ, and he creates that community, but God builds that community after first tearing another community down. I talked to a man not long ago who was fired from his church for speaking what he believed to be the truth, and he said, you know what I've realized? Is that the prophet Isaiah has told us that God dwells high and lifted up in majesty, and God dwells with those who are broken and lowly and contrite of heart, both of those places. Where God does not dwell is in that middle place, God creates this new community that's in continuity with the community of the past, that is in continuity with the community of the future, but the way that you will find yourself in that community is the opposite of what American tribalism offers to you, which is to say, join us, become absorbed within us, You don't have to think anymore. You don't have to feel anymore. You don't have to be anymore. We will tell you what to think. We will tell you who to hate. We will tell you when to speak. We will tell you when to shut up. And if you get out of line, don't worry, because we will get you back in line. That's not the way of Jesus Christ here. Instead, what Jesus does is to speak to the person. What is your name? Who are you? Come and leave everything, father and mother and brother and sister and houses and lands and homes, and follow me by yourself as alone as you were when you were born the first time. But in doing that, you will find a community of people and a community of people that are not the same people that you would be gathered up with even if Jesus were still dead, but a people who come about by blood and spirit. Tom T. Hall said, right in that Me and Jesus song, was hard. He didn't go to church. They say he lived down the street in Kentucky, Jim Crow era Kentucky, Listening to the choir sing at the Mount Pisgah United Methodist Church, African American church there in his community. He never would have encountered them. The norms would have kept them apart. But when he was recording this song, he said his producer told him, Me and Jesus is going to take a lot of backup voices. And so he called the Mount Pisgah United Methodist Church and do anything for segregation and do anything for breaking down those norms, probably. But there's a lesson in that that maybe every one of us need to know. And the lesson is tribalism kills, tribalism smothers, tribalism dehumanizes. And in a world like that, people need to hear me and Jesus. Jesus doesn't just love abstract humanity. Jesus loves you. You. Jesus doesn't just come to deal with sin. Jesus knows your sin. He's not shocked by it. He's not surprised by it. He knows that and still sent the word to you. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. A world like ours needs to hear that, and we need to realize that you cannot sing me and Jesus. Hello